Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm John Perry, and today we're asking the question, what is the future of human enhancement? You'll notice that once again, my regular co-host, Ted Cupper, is not here, but I am joined today by a very interesting guest, uh, someone I've been looking forward to having on the show for a while now. Uh, his name is George Dvorsky. He's a futurist, a science writer, and an ethicist. And many of our listeners may have read his articles over at io9, where he's a contributing editor. He's also the chairman of the board at the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies and the program director for the Rights of Non-Human Persons program. George, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. So we're going to be talking about human enhancement and Obviously, broadly speaking, humans have been using technology to enhance themselves for a very long time. For example, I'm currently wearing eyeglasses, which is a pretty significant enhancement to my vision. But as technology advances, more and more radical enhancements become possible. And, and I definitely want to explore uh, some pretty radical future possibilities as we get further into today's episode. But I think a good place to start would be just to sort of ground things in the present day. So my first question to you is, as someone who thinks about this a lot, what do you see right now as the cutting edge for human enhancement, either today or in the very near future? And it's a good question, because when we do think of human enhancement, we do tend to think more towards, you know, the radical possibilities. I know we'll get to this, but we'll talk about intelligence augmentation and radical life extension and so on. But I think, and I, and I like where you prefaced this by rooting us in the past and really uh, describing the ways in which we've enhanced ourselves in the past and the ways in which we're enhancing ourselves today. And I think it's critical that we actually do discuss that just to ground ourselves a little bit and understand you know, where we've been and where we're potentially headed into the future. But make no mistake, I think the changes that uh, await us in the future are definitely of an order of magnitude, if not order of magnitudes, greater than what's uh, happened to us in the past. But certainly you mentioned glasses and you know, by use of footwear, for example, um, you know, we're more sturdier on the ground and we're less resistant to injuries, for example. Mm-hmm. Even, you know, even just simply through the use of, of stone tools, it, right from the very start, it's kind of the, one of the things that really has defined us as a species is our ability to, to use technology to exploit our environment in ways that, you know, are greater than the sum of our individual parts. Today, you know, there are things we can point to that are a bit more profound than those. One, the one example I really like to talk about, and it's one of those things we really, really do take for granted, and that is the fact that we are, at least most of us now these days, are vaccinated against an array of infectious diseases. And if you think about it, it's a super immune system. These, these aren't things that we were born with. They're not in our genetics. They're something that was given to us after birth. And I, it's a bona fide enhancement. And it does make us immune, like I said, to a whole number of diseases such as polio. And uh, it's obviously a topical discussion because there's a, a small subset of holdouts who uh, actually believe this is a bad thing. But for all intents and purposes, most of us anyways, we have this benefit of uh, having these super uh, immune systems. And I think it's also worthwhile to talk about the way the internet has affected the levels of human interaction and even human intelligence to a certain degree. As someone who has lived a good portion of his life pre-internet and a good portion of it post-internet, I can certainly tell you that the way that I think, the way that I have access to information and the way that I'm able to engage in my society and in the, in the course of my, my life and in my work uh, has been profoundly changed by the introduction of the internet. It's something that's external to the body. I do recognize that. I guess you could say it's kind of an exosomatic brain. But at the same time, it is, though it is external, it is kind of part of this post-human aspect where we're outside of our, our bodies. And transhumanists do tend to talk about, uh, and by transhumanist, I mean those who tend to advocate for 
uh, human enhancement. Uh, they do tend to look more toward the ex- internal than the external when it comes to human enhancement, but I think right. it's worth talking about both. That As time passes, it will be increasingly difficult to distinguish the person in terms of how they're integrated within their environment and their technologies. Right now, we're very clearly defined by our skin barrier, but as the internet has shown us, we're progressively moving out of our bodies and uh, into a kind of a broader technological superstructure, if you will. And it'll be, again, increasingly difficult to you know, find those uh, lines that separate us from our environment. Right. That is definitely a fuzzy line to draw, right? Because I mean, you can sort of define how near the technology is to you in a sense, like contacts are nearer than glasses. And, you know, to have actual corrective eye surgery somehow feels even nearer than that. But it is like there's no clear boundary there, right? Exactly. And another issue uh, when it comes to you know things in the here and now that we can point to in terms of human enhancement, again, without overstating it, we are engaging, at least at a rudimentary level, in the first generation of life extension and, life, and the introduction of life extension technologies. Now, don't mistake my saying that with actual bona fide you know, life extension in terms of the kinds of things we've seen portrayed in science fiction or what have you. But by virtue of the fact that we have, we can perform surgeries and we can prescribe you know, cocktails of drugs and our ability to diagnose patients, particularly in their elderly years and, you know, see where they're, where they're headed in terms of their health. All these factors combined uh, are helping people to live uh, longer lives and, and healthier lives. It's very important to distinguish between the two. So I think already today we're getting, getting those first glimmers of having extended lives and that certainly in the future uh, we can look forward to uh, even uh, more profound uh, enhancements and advancements in terms of uh, that particular realm. Is it safe to say, though, that today in 2015, one of the front lines for this issue might be or starting to be genetics? You've put up some recent articles dealing with this issue you know, for example, dis- discussing this idea of uh, having three parents, right? Multiplex parenting or editing the human germline. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because that does seem like something that's being hashed out right now. Our genetic manipulation techniques obviously are still fairly primitive, but it does seem like there are experiments being carried out now that uh, yeah. feel like pretty dramatic and, and new to the human species. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, this is very topical right now, and, and for two reasons in particular. Uh, well, actually, three reasons, and the, 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 the third one is simply that we are in the midst of the biotechnology revolution. We have been since the 1990s, if not even before so. We really shouldn't be surprised that we're starting to talk about this with a greater sense of urgency. I mean, uh, my involvement with futurism and transhumanism, we've been talking about this for the last 15 years. Um, and even there have been generations of people before me uh, talking about these exact issues. But there is a certain urgency to it today. And the two reasons that I was going to mention are, number one, the introduction of more advanced gene editing technologies We've been able to do some gene editing in the past, but nothing quite like what we're able to do now by virtue of a new technology known as CRISPR. It's easy to think about it as a, as a kind of a genetic cut and paste tool, which is exactly what it does. And it does so very cheaply and it does so very effectively. It allows scientists to quite literally, um, after they've identified a certain segment of DNA, they can literally pull it out and then replace it with a functional copy or a copy that performs a different sort of a function. And they're doing this in animals, uh, and it's working quite spectacularly. There is, of course, the, uh, the promise and the so-called peril of you know, where this might lead in terms of uh, being able to start to uh, modify a human being. So that's the first thing. We can certainly talk about that in more detail as well. The second was news from earlier this year where uh, scientists in China uh, successfully uh, modified a human embryo. And uh, that was the first time in, um, 
scientific history that scientists had actually uh, modified the germline of a human cell. Uh, and the reason why that's important, it's, it's kind of a proof of principle, if you will, that we are capable or certainly, certainly will in the near future of being able to get into our germ cells and start to make modifications there. And why that's important is that these are heritable uh, cells. In other words, you're going to pass these traits down to the next generation should you, uh, you know, be endowed with such modifications. Unlike somatic gene therapies where genes are modified after birth, the difference with germ therapies is that you will pass those down to the next generation. And that's causing some concern because what we're not sure about and what some bioethicists uh, worry about is what are the downstream consequences of that? I mean, certainly maybe within the first to two generations, we may not notice any kind of deleterious mm. effects, but what happens five and six and seven uh, generations down the line? What kinds of negative effects will we see? What kind of maybe trends that were undesirable or even as tragedy of the commons type situation? So uh, these are the uh, the conversations that are, that are uh, we're having today. And on, on the topic of both, you know, CRISPR and um, the fact that we're now delving into the world of germline editing, there's been calls for a general moratorium on research done on in this particular area and you're starting to see a bit of a divide in the scientific community you have some saying yeah this is the way to go we absolutely must stop right now and halt all research on this and talk about it set up some guidelines get a sense as to what the dangers are and then you have another the other camp basically says well hold your horses moratoriums are you know kind of a, a hindrance to scientific progress and you know we can't know what we can't know but we have to delve further in, into these uh these particular areas and then there's kind of a, a side aspect to this discussion, which is, of course, the beneficial aspects to these sorts of technologies. And earlier, you did mention the the, uh, the multiplex parenting and the three-person I, uh, IVF. Just very quickly, what that was, was, yes, there are technically three parents uh, involved, yet the one parent has such an insignificant amount of their genetics thrown into the equation as to, it's not really fair to even call it that. And in fact, in, in Britain, where this procedure is actually sanctioned, and they do it there, by the way, to eliminate some very serious mitochondrial diseases. So you're using the third person's DNA to just patch a small part? Essentially, that is correct, which you wouldn't be able to do with uh, just the two parents. So the way that the law has been set up and the protocols have been set up in uh, in Britain now is that the third parent, if you will, with the minuscule amount of DNA that was contributed or donated, uh, they are not to be considered by any extent of the imagination a, a rightful parent. They cannot make any claim to parenthood or uh, any kind of paternity or maternity that in that sort of a way. Again, a reason why I bring this up, it shows that one, this, the reality of us having to deal with these technologies is, is it's right here, right in the here and now. We're dealing with this with this right now. But secondly, that if you sit down with you know level-headed people that are you know looking to do you know what's best for uh, for humans and, and and to look you know f out for human health and and wish to you know advance the medical sciences that you can come up with some uh, some guidelines you can come up with solutions and there doesn't necessarily have to be these uh, sweeping measures to uh, to uh, you know ban and you know eliminate certain uh, technologies outright so that's definitely kind of you know the state of the union where we're at today in terms of genetic modifications you know so just to be clear you know we're not really tinkering yet with uh, human germline the scientists in china did you know perform that experiment but they it actually didn't work particularly well the, the embryos had some some severe problems and they did uh, destroy the embryos very quickly after that and uh, that's what's kind of prompted calls for moratorium now but you know we're still quite a ways yet from being able to do the kinds of modifications that um, the futurists and transhumanists and even to a certain degree bioethicists and some progressive medical experts you know what they see we uh, will be heading to in the future 
let's just focus on editing the human germline and just that one issue for a second. What would you advocate doing now? I mean, you had a recent post where you said that the White House uh, supports a proposed ban on on this technology. Does it make sense to wait or should we just be talking about it more? Should we be testing this not on humans right. first? What, right. what, what do you think is the way forward? Um, I think that we should do... Uh... I, I don't believe in a moratorium right now, but I do believe that we do need to set up some sensible guidelines. So I'm actually very much in favor of this conference that's going to be held in a couple of months, from what I understand. Now, I, you know, as somebody who doesn't believe that personhood starts until you know the third trimester, I see no harm in uh, experimenting with uh, with embryos and trying to get a sense as to uh, you know how we can you know go about uh, germline engineering. And personally, I've got no ethical problems with that. Uh, but, but I certainly have problems with the idea of recklessly growing these embryos prematurely into full-grown human beings. We are, we are not even close to being at that stage yet. And I, I, I think we'll eventually get there. There is maybe, you know, a slight chance that this technology will never be perfected and it will always be precarious and dangerous. And maybe the, uh, uh, the baby's spawn from these sorts of technologies will develop, you know, some kinds of problems later in life. These are things that we're going to have to figure out, obviously. But I, I actually tend to not believe that. I think that uh, given enough time and refinements, we sh- will probably be able to, uh, to do this. So uh, to kind of really answer your question, I would say it's okay to, to continue to work on, on this issue as it pertains to you know, work on embryos. And it could even be animal embryos as well. Um, but again, I have no, no qualms with working on, uh, on human embryos. But secondly, definitely we've got to get uh, you know, a kind of uh, a regime set up, if you will, to, to, to basically uh, let scientists know what is and what is not permissible at this particular stage in terms of research. Right. Well, it seems like it might be important to develop a consensus, too, just because, I mean, your definition of personhood is not obviously shared by everyone, and you don't want to proceed in a way that you know, sparks strongly negative reactions that might have problems For down sure. the line. No, for sure. You, you've got to play politics. And I understand that. And there's the risk of alienating, for example, those who are perhaps more religiously minded when it comes to these matters. And while I am sensitive to those concerns, at the same time, we also have to be considered of, you know, scientific realities. And uh, if human health is in question here, which it is, because we're talking about technologies that are going to eliminate some of the worst genetic diseases that are out there, and, and genetic diseases are obviously very common amongst uh, the human species, that the longer we wait on this and the more we dilly-dally and the more that we you know, uh, feel that we have to pl- placate to what are irrational beliefs, then the, the more suffering, unfortunately, will, will have to be endured until such time as we, you know, we can wrap our heads around this particular topic. So would it be safe to say that maybe one way forward with this technology would be you iterate on this technology, running tests you know, at the level of embryos that aren't fully developed into persons, learn as much as you can from that, and then you would imagine that maybe the first actual humans that you would grow out of this you would want those to be humans that would otherwise be, you know, facing a, a negative life, right? Because me- perhaps they had some some genetic disease. And so this alternative, maybe trying an uncertain experiment on them might be worth the risk. Again, I'm not necessarily sure what the pathway will be to get there. Again, it may be a combination of testing on animal models and then using, for example, computer simulations. Again, I think computers are a very under estimated tool when it comes to all of this, particularly given, you know, the, the, the powers of processing speed and the sophistication of uh, programs in the future to be able to synthesize these sorts of processes. So we'll know in advance what we're getting into. But eventually I do feel that uh, the big decision after this is to decide, okay, which of these genetic diseases and other sorts of, you know, genetic infirmaries are we going to weed out of individuals? 
And some of them are very obvious and some of them are not, are not so obvious. There are some genetic disorders that uh, unquestionably need to be eliminated. Those, for example, that uh, uh, deal with, let's say, you know, like you suggested, uh, you know, reduced, uh, reduced capabilities in terms of both physical and uh, cognitive capabilities uh, and, and other health aspects. But there's some that are, I think, more in terms of the, the hazy areas, things that will cause a lot of consternation. For example, you know, I've read recently that uh, they're starting to, I guess, get a sense as to what are the, uh, you know, genetic underpinnings of autism, uh, which, you know, I'm kind of wary about those sorts of proclamations. But regardless, right now we do consider autism and what used to be referred to as Asperger's syndrome as problematic as, and we feel that somehow these people have a, maybe a diminished life. Again, I'm, I'm a little bit on the fence about this, but I would hate to see, for example, that we start to uh, eliminate, uh, you know, autistic people from uh, the gene pool. It just seems perhaps a little wrong to me. I mean, I might, you know, go back a couple of decades to when homosexuality, for example, was considered a disease or some kind of a psychological disease. And, you know, that, you know, if we had these technologies back then, would we have started to weed out, if you will, homosexuals? And again, that's highly problematic. It makes you wonder, what, you know, what is the disease of the day? And, uh, you know, what today do we feel is, is, is a disease, but in future might not be considered as such. These are challenging issues that we're going to have to overcome and somehow reach consensus on it. And uh, I think many of, the, many of the times this will ultimately come down to the individual choice of the parents. And, um, you know, we have to respect our reproductive autonomy and, you know, look to parents in terms of uh, helping, uh, you know, fertility doctors and physicians determine the kinds of lives that they feel are, you know, are worthwhile and the kinds of families that people would like to have for themselves. Right. So obviously these are going to be challenging issues. They are, in fact, already challenging issues. You know, they're controversial often. So I, I know you identify as a, a transhumanist, right? Is that that's correct? I, I would say, I mean, um, I'd say yes. I mean, I. I, I say yes only because I am an advocate for human enhancement. I, I genuinely believe that there are some aspects about the human condition, about our human human physiology, our psychology, you know, and other aspects that could could certainly stand to be uh, enhanced and augmented. And I'm certainly a, a, also a believer in you know endowing us with new capacities altogether. I think. Uh, no two transhumanists are the same, I would, I would dare say. Mm-hmm. And there are some areas, for example, and we can get into this a bit later, there are some areas which I think, you know, we should not cross. So, um, but yeah, you know, if you're, if I'm, you know, you put, put the question to me like that, I would say, yeah, I guess I, I would say I'm definitely a transhumanist. Well, it's always, you know, it's, it's hard to accept labels, right? So I could, I could understand your uh, hesitation to just sort of embrace that, especially when, you know, there's so many people in that camp of transhumanism. But I guess yeah. where I was going with that is, I'm just curious how you frame the debate around these issues in your head, because, for example, on the IET website, you know, transhumanism is contrasted with a perspective that they call bioconservativism mm-hmm. or another way I've seen this debate framed as kind of a conflict between, you know, the, the traditional precautionary principle and the proactionary principle that uh, Max Moore came up with. Right. So I, I'm curious if you find these binaries useful at all or if you think they are just oversimplifying things. That's a really good question. Um I think they can be helpful to a certain degree. Uh, you know, when, for example, let's take the term bioconservatism. For example, the term in and of itself, it does tend to describe a kind of outlook, if you will, when it does come to these matters. And there is definitely there's a collectivity of thinkers out there who most certainly are vehemently opposed to the kinds of things that we're talking about today. That any enhancement of any sort should be strictly prohibited. I mean, to call them conservatives and or more aptly by, you know, biological conservatives, I, I think that there's some sense to that. You know, I do, I do kind of get it. 
Whereas at the same time, some transhumanists would like to refer to themselves as techno-progressives, this kind of polar opposite, if you will, to that. What I don't like about it is the sense that, that each camp, by strict definition, you know, are at, at some kind of diametrical war with each other. And I definitely don't like that because I, I find that there are some interesting you know, fears and uh, concerns to be raised by the bioconservatives. Uh, likewise, I find that, of course, the, the techno-progressives have some valid arguments as it pertains to the need to develop these sorts of technologies. And I would certainly hope that those in the, uh, the bioconservative camp would understand that you know, technology moves forward and the medical sciences move forward. And humanity has gone under consistent change from the, you know, from the moment we picked up those sticks and stones and that that's not going to change anytime soon. And that society and humans have a remarkable ability to, you know, figure these things out. They don't, you know, happen in such a way that uh, such a calamity, uh, you know, will, will befall us. You know, I also don't believe necessarily the myth that, you know, once we cross these lines that we can't, you know, pull back. And that's something that's not discussed very often. You know, let's, say, let's just go back just a quick sec to the idea of uh, germline enhancements. Okay, let's say, you know, we discovered down the, the line, like, you know, oh my goodness, this particular, uh, you know, path is not working. You know, if we can change the germline in a certain way, we can also backtrack a bit. We can now fix what we broke, if you will, and go back to where we used to be in, let's say, in a certain uh, health domain, if you will. I don't necessarily believe that, you know, these are, you know, lines in which we, that after we cross them, that we have so much, you know, velocity that we can't slow ourselves down, you know, retrace our steps, look around us and say, oh, yeah, that was kind of a mistake. Let's go back and fix it. So back to getting your issue of, you know, monikers and uh, camps of, you know, the schools of thought, for example, I do believe, you know, it is important to kind of come at this issue with a kind of ethical framework and a philosophy. I think that's all fine. It's very helpful, obviously, is you do need frameworks with which to study these things and break it down and analyze them. But at the same time, it's also fair, I think, to look at these things on a case-by-case basis. You know, look at a particular individual. Let's say, let's say you have a couple that has, you know, we know for a fact because they've been you know, genetically screened that their child has, you know, X percent chance of, you know, inheriting a, you know, a predisposition for, you know, something. There's a, there's a humanity about that. There's a realness to that. There's a one-on-one aspect to it that I, that I think is important that we, that we don't neglect and recognize that ultimately what we're talking about are, are individuals, individual needs, and what it is exactly that they need, you know, remedied at that particular point in time in their lives. Absolutely. Yeah, I I think that's uh, that's a great way to look at things. Well, so I want to kind of open up the conversation now. I actually want to follow up on something you kind of briefly just hinted at earlier, which is you said that you do think there are some lines we should not cross. I'm curious now what those lines are. Sure. I mean, uh, the one thing that I'm particularly worried about and one thing that I'm almost universally, I guess, criticized for in the transhumanist community is is limits to uh, intelligence augmentation. Mm. In fact, it's almost like the central agenda, if you will, amongst many transhumanists is to make us as smart as possible. You know, give us big, fat, juicy brains that, you know, are on the order of, you know, you know, some kind of AI super intelligence. I personally think that's a horrible idea. I I think that at that point, you have really, for all intents and purposes, killed the original person that you were. But not only that, I'm not necessarily sure that with super intelligence of that sort, you're going to have any kind of quality of life or any, any, even any kind of a sensible or coherent psychology with which to inter- interact with the world. I, I really do think it's a kind of suicide in a, in a way, but I also think it's a dangerous experiment to start spawning, I guess, biological super intelligences. That's kind of a, uh, an experiment, I think, that's uh, on par with the kinds of fears we have surrounding 
uh, artificial super intelligence. So that's one area that I definitely uh, expressed my concerns about in the past. The other one is, and again, not necessarily opposed to this, I'm just more wary of it, and that's the whole idea of mind uploading or the transferring of consciousness to computer substrate. I'm not necessarily sure that what we're talking about here is the, uh, the transference of consciousness, or rather, uh, that we're going to be ensuring uh, the continuity of consciousness, if you will. So we have all this talk about, you know, human immortality awaiting us in the future because, oh, we'll just be able to, you know, decode the brain and, and compile it in a, in a computer and we can live, you know, happily ever after in some kind of virtual reality environment. Now, just to be clear, I'm not necessarily saying that the vision of reproducing a brain in computer substrate, what's referred to as whole brain emulations, is impossible. I actually think it is possible. But what I don't necessarily feel is possible is, is that you can actually transfer that, that sense of self, that very you know, uh, important um, sense we have of, of identity to a different place in the way that they're talking about. Well, really what it is is just uh, uh, you know, copying your brain and then you know, perhaps you know, deleting the original, and, and which also would be kind of a kind of suicide. On this topic, I, I also have concerns that, that and again, I don't want to. I would, ever, would never want to be accused of being a, a bio libertarian, and we, we might kind of use like these kinds of terms. A bio libertarian, let's say, as opposed to a bio conservative, would be somebody who really feels that there should be no limits, no laws, no constraints on our ability to modify both ourselves and our offspring. That we could use all manner of technology and whatever our hearts desire to, to change us in all, all ways you know we see fit. I, I am certainly not a believer in that. You can imagine that you could have some parents would have some, you know, not so good motives for, I guess, designing their children in ways I think that would be uh, irresponsible. Everything from cosmetic enhancements or cosmetic, um, I guess, traits. Again, I'm not necessarily saying, you know, it's bad to choose eye color or hair color. That those, These are kind of benign modifications, but more serious ones like giving them, let's say, a tail or giving them other like freaky kind of cosmetic um, aspects that might serve their particular aesthetic sensibilities, but would certainly be kind of not fair to their children. And by the same token, I think that, you know, if you had, let's say, sports-minded parents, you know, wanting, you know, to maybe have preconceived notions that their child will be, you know, the next sports star and really only be concerned about giving their children those kinds of genetic endowments, I think that's equally as problematic. I do believe that these sorts of decisions need to be made in consultation with parents, of course, but, you know, under the, the guidance, supervision, and wisdom, you know, of of uh, the medical community, you know, and then there should be a kind of checklist in terms of what we know to be safe and what we know to be reasonable and, you know, move uh, forward accordingly and, and go about uh, these kinds of changes that way. It would be maybe safe to say that on the whole, you see these technologies as having tremendous positive benefits, but that, you know, you would promote a balanced view, right? Uh, in terms yeah. of like all of these technologies have their own, you know, ethical issues to sort of dissect yeah. and, and consider. Well, why don't we go through a couple different areas now of human enhancement and maybe take those out as far as we want to go with them. One that you've already touched on that we could get into in more detail, I'm sure, is, is life extension uh, and just health in general. I, I want to talk about uh, maybe some of the near-term things that we might be able to do. Like It seems like lab-grown organs is something that we might be able to do fairly soon compared yeah. to other uh, more speculative life extension technologies. What do you have to say about that? Yeah. No, definitely. That is really, really right around the corner, actually. Um, uh, I know that uh, there are, you know, we're talking about lab-grown uh, kidneys and uh, we've got, of course, lab-grown hearts. They're not quite ready for prime time yet, but 
Uh, I know that there are a number of labs in and around the United States and the world in which they're working on these and they're getting incredibly close. So, and, th- and that certainly does speak to the whole issue of life extension because obviously as we get older, uh, our organs do tend to degrade uh, over time. And uh, yeah, I think that uh, really what you're talking about is regenerative medicine. That holds tremendous promise and it certainly will be a fundamental aspect of radical life extension in the future. And I think we're already, we're already starting to get there. And it'll be through the use of you know stem cells and uh, grafts and all those sorts of things that we can start to you know, and remarkably use our own bodies to actually grow ourselves. You know, there's not going to be a chance for rejection because these are, you know, our own cells that we're uh, recreating. And uh, we can, you know, just systematically and iteratively start to fix and patch up, you know, our aging and failing uh, body parts. So that's certainly one aspect of it. But yeah, I think, um, you, you know, you touched upon uh, radical life extension and that's one uh, particular enhancement that I'm particularly excited about and one that I've advocated for for many years. By radical life extension, again, just to be clear, you know, we're not necessarily talking about people living uh, to an extreme age, but at the same time, you know, having to age, you know, accordingly. Like, we're not talking about decrepitude and infirmary and poor health, like, let's say, into your 160s. What we are talking about and what anti-aging experts are advocating for is the elimination of aging itself, the halting the aging process, uh, creating, you know, rejuvenation therapies and creating other sorts of... uh, anti-aging interventions that will secure a person, you know, let's say what would be the the biological equivalent of, you know, being in your 20s or your 30s and and, and then staying there, you know, indefinitely. And I think that's extremely exciting. And the kinds of technologies that will make that happen, you know, uh, still need to be developed. We still need to actually wrap our heads around what is even causing aging. For example, you've got schools of thought that suggest that aging is, in fact, just a consequence of wear and tear. Uh, yeah, you've got another school of thought that suggests that aging is actually a genetically programmed process, that evolution mm-hmm. is actually uh, responsible for the aging process. And that we, what we need to do is, by consequences, to get into our genome and find those you know, age-related genes that are causing us to age and so on. But eventually, you know, um, you know I feel that we'll get there. You know, um, uh, I like what uh, Ray Kurzweil has to say on the matter, which is you only really need to live long enough to get to the first so-called bridge technology. Uh, in other words, it doesn't all have to be at once. You know, you just have to uh, live long enough to see uh, the uh, the intervention come into existence that you know treats your particular problem. Again, hopefully you're, you'll be lucky in terms of what that particular problem is. Um, I'm not necessarily convinced that there's going to be the so-called you know anti-aging pill that that'll never exist. It'll always be a part of a, a multiplicity of interventions. And we're already getting there. I mean, you go to your doctor today, let's say an older person goes to the doctor today and say, doctor, I've got this problem, this problem, and this problem. And what does the doctor do? By, you know, by their obligation, they have to go about treating it using the best science that's available. This is not going to stop in the future. And this is what kind of kills me about those people who say they're opposed to life extension. Like, well, how can you be opposed to life extension? Are you saying that at some point the doctor is going to say, sorry, buddy, you know, I'd like to help you, but this would be going too far. In other words, it's such an arbitrary thing. How could you actually ever, you know, say that a certain intervention is, is somehow qualitatively different than others at this particular point? I mean, I recognize that there are consequences, of course, to radical life extension in terms of what it will do to the individual, what it will do, let's say, to our sense of continuity, uh, our relationships, uh, perhaps boredom will set in, and other things that we, and maybe other cognitive issues that we haven't even thought of because we actually have never lived to be, you know, 250 years old. And of course, there will be consequences to the uh, environment as well. I mean, certainly right now, as it stands, there are, uh, each of our, each in our own uh, global footprint is far too large for this planet to sustain in the long term. And realistically, we need to start to deal with those problems, um, you know, while we uh, you know, also work to uh, radically extend lives, for example. So, um, 
I'm glad you brought up uh, the, the whole radical life extension issue because it's one that I'm particularly uh, partial to. Well, I'm absolutely in your camp of being excited about this possibility. And I, I agree with you. It's kind of baffling sometimes that people can be opposed to life extension as a concept. But I do think th there's a couple issues that strike a chord with me here. One is that it seems like if we're going to have indefinite lifespans, that we also need a really well-protected right to die. Because, I mean, right now, we don't always have that right. I mean, it, it's not always accepted that people should be, you know, allowed to determine whether they continue to be conscious or not. And it seems like that becomes even more important in a world where life could continue indefinitely. What, what do you think about that? Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think that the issue of, you know, fighting for your right for a radically extended life is definitely within the same uh, area of discussion, you know, as it pertains to right to death. In, in many jurisdictions in the world today, you don't have that right. You are forced to, to endure whatever disease or, uh, uh, infirmary that you're you're suffering from, uh, with no recourse to you know you know terminate your life, and you know if, if we follow that logic and we have the introduction of life extension, you know you could conceivably be forced by the state or by the society to to live you know on and on and on and on, and you know for example, I feel that I reserve the right to both live as a life as long as I want, but also to terminate that life when I feel I finally had enough. Who knows, maybe, you know, maybe around, you know, the year 500 or the year, you know, once you're right. 2000, you're 2000 year old, you know, you're like, yeah, you know what, this is probably pretty much done. I pretty much you know seen and done everything I feel is kind of important to a, you know, a, a person and, you know, that it's now, you know, time to part with my mortal coil. I, I do feel that those are, uh, you know, definitely related aspects, definitely. It definitely seems like that point, though, is is far beyond the, the hundred years that we tend to get today, if, if we're lucky, even. Yeah, you know, you're right. Actually, when you when you do talk to uh, centenarians, uh, even though even folks like in their 80s, 90s, and who have surpassed the age of 100, if you ask them, you know, um, about you know degrees of happiness and well-being and contentment, provided that they are not suffering from something and they're not already you know dealing with some kind of debilitating illness, whether it be like cognitive decline or they, let's say they're in physical pain and they're achy and stuff like that, if they're in a general good state of health almost universally, they do uh, report a very high level of contentment and satisfaction with life and would like to continue to live on. And I think that's very important. You know, there is this myth perpetuated that, oh, we'll, we'll tire of life. And, we, you know, when you're, when you're that old, you want to die anyways. And, you know, that's just, it's just simply not true. And it's not fair. It's even ageist, I would argue. And again, that's, uh, that's another topic, perhaps for another day, which uh, another, maybe it's another aspect of why we fear anti-aging. And we fear the onset of, you know, geritocracies, for example, but uh, definitely, I agree with you. You know, uh, I think that uh, it's an open question as to uh, how old we can be before we feel a certain uh, dissatisfaction with our lives. You used a term that I actually haven't heard before, geritocracy. Is that the fear that the older generation will continue to stay in charge? Is that what that means? That's correct. And the idea that uh, when people stop dying, that they will hold on to their wealth, they'll hold on to their power, they'll hold on to anything that, you know, uh, with their positions in their, in their jobs, and that it'll be increasingly difficult for uh, the younger generations to break into these domains. That is definitely an argument that has been used uh, in opposition to the, the whole life extension idea. I mean, I don't want to get too sidetracked into this, but do you think that that argument just has no merit at all? I mean, I, I guess I'm wondering, like, you know, they say that as you get older, your your brain plasticity decreases and your, your mind is less flexible and you're less open to new ideas. Right. It seems like if we don't also have a solution that, you know, extends brain flexibility with age, that 
maybe yeah. that fear is not totally unfounded. Right. I don't know. There, there's two issues here you bring up. And uh, again, uh, and actually, uh, again, I don't want to sound ageist here, but again, I, I do I, I respect the concern that, uh, yes, there is a kind of uh, resistance to change. There's a, uh, you know, an old way of thinking that certainly is uh, embedded within older generations. And, you know, you know, for example, let's take the issue of gay marriage and other social changes like that. These are, these are almost exclusively issues uh, over generational lines. They can even extend into the scientific community. I believe it was Niels Bohr, and, and I, I might be misquoting Niels Bohr, but it, it was certainly a, a quantum physicist said that they said scientific uh, ideas, they don't change because, you know, people necessarily, you know, start to buy into them and change their minds about it. Science changes because the old stubborn generation that refused to believe it died. And the younger generation who grew, who grew up, uh, you know, being taught these things at a younger, at a younger age never questioned it and, and found it to be intuitive. And, you know, they believed it. This is how, you know, progress advances. So, these are definitely, you know, as you can see, uh, the whole issue here as it pertains to life extension is a huge one because the ramifications are quite sweeping. But back to the whole idea of the gerontocracy, yeah, I'm not so convinced that that's, that's a legitimate concern. I mean, we as a corporatist, you know, capitalistic kind of society already dealing, we're dealing with classist issues and with people holding on to uh, their wealth, whether it be inherited or, or, you know, through uh, nepotism or what have you. So um, these are already issues in the here and now. And I think it's maybe a bit of a fiction to start worrying about uh, how elder, elderly folks are going to want to hold on to their uh, positions of power and wealth. Yeah, it does seem like it might be a, a bit of a, a silly fear to have uh, in, in light of how great the possibilities are of pursuing this technology. Let, let's switch to a couple uh, other possibilities for human enhancement. So uh, let's touch upon reproduction for a second. We already mentioned the, the multiplex parenting concept, but another interesting reproduction technology that you've written about a little bit is, is artificial wombs which I find this actually fascinating. To me, this sounds like it would be an incredible technology. I have no idea how far along we are on this, though. Like, can you speak yeah. to, to what progress on along that dimension looks yeah, like? Yeah, you know, the kind of thing envisioned, for example, in uh, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World and maybe even presaged by uh, J.B.S. Haldane in his uh, very famous book um, from 1923. Uh, you know, I think he maybe even talked about, uh, you know, artificial worm- wombs or what maybe would refer to as exosomatic wombs. And even, I think it was in the 1990s when um, Donna Haraway said she'd rather be a cyborg than a goddess, uh, for example. And one of the, one of the aspects of, of becoming a cyborg, she felt, uh, and what would be a very liberating thing would be to divorce females from being that, fundamental reproductive vehicle, if you will, for humanity. She felt that as long as women were kind of beholden to give birth to uh, to babies, that they will for, forever be sh- shackled to the paternalistic society. Yeah, I'm kind of rambling now in terms of maybe some of the, the, the backstory, if you will, but maybe perhaps giving, you know, your listeners a sense as to why there would be a demand for such a thing, and not least of which the toll, you know, gestation puts on the, on the, on the woman's body, the discomfort of it, particularly, you know, once a, a pregnant woman gets into the third trimester, for example, it's very, very uh, challenging, and not to mention uh, the risks and perils of childbirth itself. So, you know, for perhaps a subset of women, let's say, and certainly not all, it's conceivable that some may desire to, you know, uh, gestate their, their baby externally, you know, by virtue of what's called a, uh, an artificial womb. There's been some thought about it in terms of no one's actually working on it. It's for at least not that I know. I, I could be wrong. If somebody does know about that, I'd love to hear about it. But there is kind of like a, an analog to it, if you will. And that is 
how we are pushing you know, the technologies of neonatal care even further and further. And for example, preemies, you know, babies that are born you know, exceptionally early into the, uh, the pregnancy, like, uh, we're constantly pushing back our abilities to uh, sustain those babies externally uh, uh, and you know, get them through you know, the, the, the really trying time and, and uh, they don't die perhaps as, as readily as they have and so on. I guess the point I want to make by this is I think this technology might come from that channel you know, by mm. continually pushing the envelope of how early we can sustain a life outside of the womb in terms of, let's say, uh, premature birth or even the need to, let's say, do a C-section uh, for an emergency, what have you, that we may eventually get there. We're going to find, of course, that we can't simply stick a, you know, a preterm baby into a, you know, a kind of like a, what looks to me like a, like a lizard's aquarium, for example, or terrarium. We, we are talking about something that needs to very much resemble, you know, the, something within an amniotic sac. It has to be dark, for example. It has to be warm. Uh, it has to contain all the rich minerals and, and other aspects that are fed into the, uh, the growing fetus through the placenta and so on. It has to move. It has to do all these sorts of things that a mother would naturally do during the time of her pregnancy. So as you can probably appreciate, we're quite a ways yet from having those kinds of technologies at our disposal. But certainly at a theoretical level, there's no reason to believe that we probably, you know, we couldn't create something like this. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's certainly one of the more interesting places we could go uh, in the future, and I understand that for many, that's about as dystopian a thought as it might get. It's, <laughs> right. uh, I mean, this is the thing about biotechnology, and this is the thing that, back to J.B.S. Haldane and Aldous Huxley, you know, there's something inherently yucky uh, and, and off-putting about advances when it comes to biology. You know, when it comes to, you know, other sciences like, you know, archaeology and uh, cosmology, sometimes, you know, cosmology, you know, slash metaphysics can present some pretty distressing news, you know, when it comes to like multiverse theory and, uh, uh, you know, the collapsing universe and things like that, but nothing quite on the order of the distress we get when we find out that, oh, you know, we can actually tweak this about our bodies and we can actually, you know, use our technologies to do this with our minds and so on. It, that really does create, again, that that sense of disquiet. And certainly the, the prospect of artificial wombs is ranks right up there at the top of the kinds of things that we currently would kind of find a, a bit abhorrent. Um, you know, for, on that topic, like human cloning is another one that gets people really, you know, tied up in a knot. And for me, it's one of the biggest non-issues I think out there. The, 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 the prospect of human cloning, so long as it's safe, I really honestly don't, do not see what the concern is about it. You know, this idea that we're going to have, you know, uh, the homogenization of human society, I don't believe it. I think a very extreme minority of people will, will eventually opt in to clone themselves. And I think they'll do so for very valid reasons. You know, for example, couples that are infertile, those who simply want to, you know, have biological offspring. One way, you know, of uh, assaging fears is simply by describing clones as being nothing more than delayed twins. You know, we certainly don't have a repugnance when it comes to identical twins or triplets or quadruplets. But for some reason, we have some kind of uh, an aversion to uh, the, the prospect of clones. And uh, interestingly, you know, what were the monsters of our past and what are the bugbears of, you know, today they do kind of go through cultural transformations. And for example, if, if any of your listeners like to watch the show Orphan Black, for example, we're finding that we're currently in a transitional phase where human clones are losing their monstrous appeal. These are the heroes now of science fiction rather than the villains of science fiction. And I think similarly in future, as long as we continue to have these positive portrayals of biotechnology and the change that they can bring to society and the kinds of persons that can emerge from it and the kinds of benefits that can emerge from it. I think this is one of the more powerful things about speculative fiction is the ability to, again, precondition us to accepting 
the kinds of changes that can be uh, wrought by these technologies. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a fundamental creepiness vibe to a lot of these things. I mean, just returning to the artificial wombs for a second. I mean, if you're picturing a bunch of babies in a in a lab, you know, being uh, grown and and <laughs> in vats. I mean, that that's is certainly creepy. I, I wouldn't even dispute that. It just creates a disturbing image, and I think you know science fiction definitely can play a role in in slowly introducing these ideas until eventually we get used to them. I think another area that's could be creepy in a different way is the issue of moral enhancement, or sometimes this is known as as virtue engineering. Yeah. The other thing is just sort of creepy in terms of the visual, but the, to me this is creepy because you're you're altering people's personality, right? And obviously yeah. the goal here is to modify their personality in ways that are that are positive, you know, giving them more self control or uh, yeah. giving them more empathy. But then you touched upon earlier that one of your lines for human enhancement might be the point at which you kind of destroy the person, right, by enhancing their intelligence beyond a certain point. And it seems to me like when you start modifying people's personality, there's always that danger that at some point they stop being themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm actually glad that you brought up moral enhancement. It is certainly something that is being discussed um, within a number of communities, whether they be futurists and transhumanists or even amongst uh, neuroscientists. And uh, there was a conference a few years ago uh, we did back in New York. And I was amazed at, uh, you know, how, you know, how matter of factly this topic was being discussed uh, in amongst philosophers and ethicists and scientists and so on. And for the neuroscientists present, they were certainly concerned about and interested in moral enhancement when looking at, for example, individuals who, for whom they have problems, you know, exhibiting a moral sense. And we talked so much about psychopaths over the course of that conference. I, it was a, it started to get tiresome, actually, and I'm, I'm not even, I'm only half joking. It was actually quite interesting because you know, they kept pointing to the deficiencies in the brain uh, and, and those aspects of, um, you know, moral decision making that have, may have been compromised neurologically, and they were desperate to try to find ways to, to fix it. And um, unfortunately, we're really only at the stage of identifying it and mapping it. Um, but if certainly, you know, one can, you know, not unreasonably, you know, assume that in future we'll be able to go in there and, and tweak whatever's wrong, get into the amygdala, for example, which appears to be one of the more problematic areas as far as psychopathy is concerned, and, you know, start to, uh, to fix it accordingly. Um, and I guess what I'm trying to do is maybe sway you from thinking of it in terms of, again, as being something yucky and problematic and understanding why we would wish to do something. So, for example, we've, uh, we refer to uh, prisons as correctional facilities, and we know very well that there's no corrections going on there. It's simply a place to store away our criminals and uh, those who uh, you know, are so socially deviant and may be harmful to others. Um, without really, you know, putting in too much of effort into rehabilitation. I think perhaps in Europe, there might be a better, they may be better at that than we are here in North America. I can't necessarily speak to that. And again, I know this can be upsetting to people because there's also the sense of justice that, you know, you, you, you do the crime, you've got to serve the time. But I do believe that that mentality has to be uh, eliminated. It's uh, not, I think, what we, what we want in a, in a fair, in a liberal society. Uh, ultimately, what we want are people to be productive, conscientious, caring, loving people, you know, that we would love to continue to be around, you know, that they can have, you know, families and friends and, and so on. And if we could find, you know, for example, those parts of their psychologies that aren't lending toward moral behavior, then why don't we, you know, go in there and, you know, uh, fix what is broken? And again, I'm not so naive to believe that 
sociology and sociological factors and socioeconomic factors play a huge role in this. I recognize that that's perhaps more of an overriding factor than what I'm talking about. But at the, by the same token, we do know that some individuals do have a proclivity towards violence and other uh, and other ways to harm people that you know maybe we can deal with at the neurological level and rehabilitate them in the, in the truest sense. But even, I think, even amongst the general population of those of us who would be considered high-functioning individuals and those of, those of us who have a strong moral sense, there is an argument, for example, amongst some more radical transhumanists, I find that we are actually not as moral as we think. In a way, this is almost quasi-totalitarian in the sense that maybe we should tweak ourselves in such a way that we can, in fact, act even more morally or act morally in a way that we think that we actually should or Mm. believe is ideal. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, There's a case has been made, for example, that we actually kind of need to engage in moral enhancement as a way to finally deal with, uh, I guess, the ways in which we're destroying uh, the planet through, uh, you know, problems with climate change and global warming and right. uh, other other kinds of pollution and the way we waste things and so on. That um, it's getting so bad that eventually it's getting to the point where it's becoming an existential threat unto itself. We're not there yet, but I think the devastation to the environment could, you know, eventually be deemed an existential threat. So um, th- that case is being made, by the way, that we do need to. Again, engage in moral enhancement so that we will be more respectful to the environment. Okay, here's another good example. Let's take, for example, the um, humans have many cognitive biases. And uh, a cognitive bias is is kind of one of these ingrained, even, I guess, uh, built-in glitches in our thinking that causes us to kind of produce errors in our judgment and our thinking and decision-making. And uh, one of those is um, what's referred to as the in-group bias. And that is that we tend to like and care uh, more for those people who are in our immediate group than those who are, you know, on on the outside. In other words, I guess when it comes to topics of moral enhancement, we also have to realize that we're pretty broken. You know, there are a lot of things about us that aren't quite right, even though we tend to think that we're right. And this is another aspect about the, if I might use the term, bioconservatives, that they do feel that there is something about humanity in its current form that is quite perfect and inviolable, that there's some kind of essential spirit about it or essential component about it, that the once we start to fool around with it, that it, it's just going to just result in, you know, a, a whole host of problems. Francis Fukuyama, the political scientist, for example, is one individual who definitely buys into this particular uh, argument. Well, <laughs> Go ahead. let me jump in here, because um, when I said earlier that this seemed Possibly, you know, and again, I'm I'm pretty receptive to these ideas. I I would generally identify as a a transhumanist myself, but I think, you know, the reason I find this potentially creepy is because of the, what I almost think of as like the death of the self. Once you start changing the dials of someone's personality, because when, when I think about the, the human brain, I mean, it's not like there's, I mean, we're still learning about it. So, so what do I know? But it doesn't seem like there's, you know, a location for rational thought in the human brain where you can just like identify this one cognitive bias and then turn it off, right? It seems like in, in order to make these kinds of improvements, it seems like you would have to make more broad sweeping changes to the brain that would be likely to have uh, right. other impacts on the person's personality. Yeah. So pre-treatment and, and post-treatment, are they the same person anymore? Yeah, and I don't necessarily disagree that we would be fundamentally changing you know, the personality, if you will. Even one's framework on life and really core aspects of who they were as a person that after their quote unquote treatment, they'd be like, you know, that's a real different person that I used to know in the past. Okay. When I talked earlier about extreme intelligence augmentation and the, and the death of the person, I, I kind of meant it more in a, in a, in a literal way that, that one's ability to actually think as a single solitary coherent individual mm. is 
that, that capacity has been annihilated. The difference here is there's still a continuity of consciousness. There's still the person has all their memories, all the experiences, all the wisdom, all the mistakes that they've made in the past. This might be a legacy of uh, the idea of the soul or the spirit, that there is this immutable single thing that is the self. And, and, and that's a myth. There is not, no such thing. I mean, as, as a person who's in his mid-40s, I look back at myself, you know, when I was in my 30s and in my 20s and in my teens, and I am so far removed from that individual. I am a different person. No question about it. But because there's a, there's a continuity about it, um, I don't necessarily feel that there, there's been a kind of a, a death of that person. But I do want to kind of address the, the concern you have is that maybe there is a chance of going too far, you know, or that, that you are in, in a way unfairly altering a person such that they're, they're no longer their true self anymore. Yeah, I mean, these are challenging philosophical questions, I think, and, uh, and ethical questions. Uh, ultimately, though, I think if, if you were to ask the person after the uh, adjustment has been made, like, are you content? You know, are you, are you happy with your new outlook, so to speak? And of course, similarly asking uh, the people uh, who, with whom they interact with, you know, and, and if we all get, you know, affirmative responses at the end, then I think the, that would make a strong argument in favor of these sorts of interventions, for sure. And at the same time, one must be also wary of impositions on people where they're forced to do these sorts of things. I do recognize that there are dangers, you know, uh, you know, involved in that. So I don't want to, again, you know, act all naive about it. Right. So, I mean, to take a specific example, you know, suppose someone is a sexual predator. Right. Uh, you could modify them at the level of the brain in such a way that those desires that society doesn't tolerate are then eliminated or you could provide them an outlet that's harmless, like whether it's, you know, a virtual outlet or using robots or something. That's, right. that's, ex that's a solution that's externalized from them. And I don't know, maybe you would even want to give them that choice, I guess. I mean, I, yeah. if you ha assuming yeah. you had both options, I have no idea. But Yeah, no, I, and I think, again, um, I do like where you're going with that in the sense that you are giving this individual who is, let's say, uh, poised to undergo such therapy the option and knowing you know, what the consequences are and knowing the benefits, of course, at the same time. Yeah, so let's move on now to a, a, another topic, which um, is one I haven't heard discussed as much, uh, but is interesting to me, which is sleep. Right? Because as long as right. we're talking about redesigning humans, it seems like sleep is an area that could use some attention. I'll just rattle off some things that come to my head r right away, which is obviously, you know, control of dreams, recording of dreams would be great if we could do that somehow. Tons of people have sleep disorders. So I feel like if we could fix people's sleep problems, I mean, that would probably have tremendous rippling positive effects on society. And of course, many people would love to just eliminate the need for sleep entirely so that they could be you know, twice as productive. Have you given a lot of thought to this issue or? Yeah, I mean, uh, all the above. I mean, um, you're right. Um, sleep is definitely a big part of our lives. Uh, yet there are many individuals who would like to have nothing to do with it. And uh, which surprises me. I'm not one of those. I, I've argued in the past that uh, uh, sleep is one of the more wonderful aspects of existence because it, it does enable you to take a bit of a cognitive break from the intensity that is life but also just the comfort of sleep, uh, the restfulness that you feel from it. And, and of course, the whole aspect of dreaming, like you mentioned as well, is even kind of one, one of the more wonderful aspects of life, assuming, of course, that you have positive dreams. Like, dreams can also be a very negative thing. But um, true, true. Uh, one of the fears I have of, of those who advocate for uh, sleeplessness is that, well, if you're constantly in a restful state and you're constantly, you know, uh, a high level of energy, and I think this is maybe part of maybe what they're advocating for is then that means you can be productive pretty much 24 seven. And then the, the concern there is that, well, then 
if you're productive 24-7, somebody will find a use for you 24-7. And then em- employers will start to insist that you work, you know, uh, ridiculous amount of hours knowing that you won't get tired. Um, you know, truckers will be asked to, you know, drive, you know, 35 hours straight or whatever. You know, you, one can imagine a bunch of different scenarios. I realize I'm getting maybe a bit slippery slopey on this, but these are just things that do cross my mind. As for, you know, um, other aspects, a bit more speculative is to talk about, yeah, record the recording of dreams. I know that some neuroscientists are at the extremely rudimentary phases of this. Again, not even perhaps worth talking about, but it would be interesting to know that we could record dreams someday and even uh, work to manipulate them in some sort of a way, um, which would kind of create a kind of a virtual reality experience if you know if you will so yeah i mean i, I don't i haven't necessarily thought of uh, those aspects as being particularly uh enhancement like or transhumanistic but certainly the the idea of eliminating sleep and i know that uh the the pentagon research agency darpa is definitely engaged in that they would love nothing more than to have a soldier that doesn't need to sleep so it's certainly something that's being worked on right now yeah i'm sure i'm sure they would like that uh okay so um one topic that we we keep touching upon but that i want to delve into a little bit more is intelligence amplification because we we discussed it so far really only in the context of you know very dramatic super intelligence but let's talk about the more near term just improving people's intelligence to to small degrees right and not not worrying about the the issue of of the intelligence exploding in in such a way that you know people are no longer the same it seems like a lot of people are arguing that intelligence amplification is possibly an imperative that we need to pursue because it might be one way for us to adapt to some of the existential risks and challenges that we're facing potentially in the future. Uh, would you agree with that perspective? Mm, I, I find that a bit of a, a dubious claim. I, I mean, do you really feel that lack of intelligence is, is what's causing, for example, the perils that uh, you know have befallen us? I think there's enough smarts on this planet as it is to know, you know, what the problems are here, whether it be poverty, whether it be a nuclear proliferation, or you know, or uh, you know, whether it be uh, you know the kinds of devastation that's uh, you know happening to our planet, you know, at an environmental level. I think that what you're talking about is common sense and not necessarily intelligence. Uh, there's a difference between you know the kind of IQ type intelligence that many transhumans are advocating for and just the general kind of I guess common sense intelligence that I, I think I would you know kind of personally be advocating for and I don't at the risk of sounding you know uh, like a pop scientist and, and talking about emotional intelligence um, there is some merit to the idea of you know wanting for example control over our psychological capacities our emotional level not you know being prone to depression and, and not, and at the same time, not being prone to addiction, which will be a huge issue. It's a huge issue now, and will continue to be so into the future. So, for me, when I think of intelligence, I do think of those things. But I also do think that there is also some merit to IQ type intelligence. There's nothing I feel necessarily wrong with having phenomenal math skills and and pure logic skills and spatial re- reasoning skills. I think those things are wonderful. Um, you know, uh, and I think they would certainly. Uh, uh, enhance our lives and enrich our lives in, in, in profound ways. But to think that, and I, I, again, I think perhaps we're, we're biased by, you know, great scientists of the past like Einstein and, and Sir Isaac Newton thinking that if we just, you know, create the genius that, you know, that we're, will singularly and individually solve the world's problems, I don't necessarily believe that because I think we know what the world's problems are and it's just a matter of not having the will to do it. Um, there are, you know, socioeconomical and, and political and corporate interests that are, you know, uh, that are preventing these things from happening. A lot of it has to do with, um, you know, human nature and human greed and um, just the, the general thrust of history and society. These are all, you know, greater factors when it comes to these sorts of things. So I don't necessarily buy the argument that 
by virtue of having, you know, a, a planet of exceptionally intelligent people that we're going to uh, solve all of our problems. And again, maybe a better question would be how do we create a planet in which everybody has equal access to education, but education of a high quality such that, you know, we can start to kind of come to our senses and come to realize that we are all in this together and start to work toward common solutions. That's an interesting answer and, and not what I expected, actually. Um, why don't maybe a good place to end on would be now that we've gone into some more speculative territory to kind of ground things again in the present. And let me put it to you to just maybe make any recommendations that you can to people listening. Let's say that the average listener to this podcast probably skews a little bit transhumanist, a little bit more in favor of using technology to enhance the human condition. What are the issues right now that would be the most important to get involved in and and how might people go about doing that? Certainly, I think that um, engaging people in these conversations to begin with, the normalization of this conversation is what needs to, uh, to happen. That, you know, we can talk about exosomatic wombs, and we can talk about radical life extension and, you know, and do it, let's say, at a cocktail party or over lunch and, you know, not having to elicit gasps and uh, feelings of disgust. That would be, you know, that'd be nice. You know, I do think that, you know, we, we do need to start to engage in these conversations with the general public and just make it part of our natural conversations. And, you know, so it's not doesn't appear so shocking. Another idea is when you do run into resistance, for example, I think it's important to challenge people on their beliefs, uh, particularly when they present you know, an argument in opposition to uh, various aspects of human enhancement. Because I feel that many of the arguments aren't rooted in any kind of you know, empirical basis. It's strictly speculative fears that aren't necessarily grounded in any kind of um, you know, reality. Take, for example, even the issue of some of the fears as it pertains to radical life extension. Here's a good example. Um, uh, the, the previous uh, bioethicist uh, during the, uh, the W. Bush administration, Leon Cass, said that if we had radically extended lives, uh, we would never appreciate some of the more transient things in life. He said that uh, you know, the flowering of a rose would never seem so beautiful or nor, or nor would the sunset, you know, seem so gorgeous if we knew that we would live forever. Again, these are kinds of very poetic and, you know, I think very flimsy arguments uh, that don't make much sense. I think that at a, subjectively, I would find a rose and a sunset is, is just as beautiful, you know, with a with a 90-year lifespan as I would with a 900-year lifespan. But these are the kinds of things I think that people need to be confronted about and challenged when they put up these nonsensical arguments. We get down to the nitty-gritty Talk about what in your heart of hearts you believe will or will not, you know, transpire by virtue of these technologies. But very, very importantly, you know, address these issues as it's going to affect human lives, as it's going to alleviate human suffering, and as it's going to, you know, contribute to meaningful, productive, and enriched lives. Well, I think that's a really good note to end on. Uh, I know you need to go, but before you do, is there anything that you want to want to promote or mention uh, that listeners should check out of yours? No, no, but if you like what you heard today, you know, feel free to email me at, you know, george at io9.com or you can follow me at uh, Twitter on um, at Dvorsky. Um, and, you know, I write uh, daily for uh, both uh, Gizmodo and io9 and we brush up on these topics on an almost daily basis. So that's really all when it comes to keeping in touch with what I'm doing. Well, thank you so much, George, for being on the show. It's been tons of fun. It was absolutely my pleasure. And that was a wonderful discussion. Okay, so thank you for listening to our episode with George Dvorsky, and apologies again that my co-host Ted was not with me today. He should be back in future episodes. Please continue to send us feedback, suggestions, or whatever else crosses your mind to our email, feedback at reviewthefuture.com. You can tweet at us at RTF underscore podcast, or you can just come to our website, reviewthefuture.com, and post a comment. We love to hear from you. 
We do have an iOS app that I want to remind everybody about that you can find in the iTunes store to search for Review the Future. And most importantly, if you want to help us out, the absolute best thing that you can do is to share our episodes with other people, to post us around the internet and just let other people know who might be interested uh, so that we can continue to grow and provide you guys with these episodes. Thanks as always for listening and we will see you soon. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.